0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Dr. Paul Miller, who's a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and we talk about his forthcoming book, Just War and Order Liberty, and the use of technology in the international order. Dr. Miller also serves as a senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He previously served in the United States Army, including a tour in Afghanistan, as an analyst with the CIA, and as director of Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being here with us on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of got you started on this path of studying just war?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Always uh, enjoy the opportunity to share about the ideas that I've been thinking about, writing about, and praying about for for a long time. I've been thinking about these issues of war and peace and justice for, for most of my adult life. I, I joined the Army uh, just over 20 years ago right before 9-11, and I served in Afghanistan, and I'm a Christian, and so I naturally wanted to think about the rights and the wrongs of of war and warfare. Uh, I knew that, you know, there's obviously some things in war that are are wrong, but I felt sort of instinctively that it was still permissible for Christians to participate in war, and I wanted to think in a more structured way about why and how and what that would look like. And so that led me, over the course of 20 years, to really think about this and do some reading in it, and just over the last few years, really uh, focus in intently and produce this uh, this book.
0: Yeah, and I know in this, you argue uh, for just war thinking to be understood through three main traditions. Can you kind of expand on those three traditions, and what's the role of natural law, justice, and sovereignty in those?
1: Yeah, so if the listeners here have any familiarity with just war thinking, um, they may have heard kind of the standard checklist that just war requires right authority and right intention and that you have to fight with discrimination and proportionality and so forth. And what I wanted to argue in my book is that there's a a different way of understanding the just war traditions, plural, that this is a body of political theology that arose not quite originally with Christian thinkers. There's actually some pre-Christian thinkers like like Cicero who started to think about the ethics of war. But then the Christian thinkers from Augustine onward really begin to kind of systematize this into a tradition of thought and that that tradition changes over time. So the categories you may have learned in your your undergraduate philosophy class, they mean different things in different centuries. What Augustine meant by a just cause is very different from what Vittel or Grotius meant by a just cause. And that's true today. You know, words change their meanings over the years. And so I wanted to emphasize the three different traditions in just war thinking. The Augustinian tradition defines justice and natural law and sovereignty with reference to biblical cosmology and biblical concepts. Natural law exists. It it impels us to seek the sort of fulfillment of our natural moral aspirations that God has given us. It's the imprint of of his image on our lives sovereignty is understood as the responsibility to care for the common good, uh, not merely to defend borders and sovereignty, but, but to care for the common good and to uphold a biblical notion of justice and peace. Um, and if that's true, then the Augustinian notion of just war means that we ought to vindicate the ideals of peace and justice and ordered liberty in, through, and with the instruments of the state, including warfare when necessary. There's a second tradition of just war that emerges after the wars of religion in the 17th century, and I call it in my book the Westphalian tradition, that really de-emphasizes justice and peace, and instead emphasizes the defense of borders, the defense of national autonomy and national sovereignty. And in this view, the only just cause for going to war is to defend individual states from invasion. Now, I agree that's a just cause, but I just don't think that's what Augustine meant when he originally wrote about these things a long time ago. More recently in the 20th century, we have what I call the liberal tradition, that is to say, the classical liberal tradition of just war. And it tries to correct for some of the excesses of the Westphalian tradition by talking about the importance of human rights, of defending human dignity in, through, and with warfare. And so it expands what counts as just cause a little bit. Uh, as well as increases the responsibility for post-conflict reconstruction and stabilization. That's really the heart of my argument, and it, it has all kinds of implications for how we think about warfare.
0: So of the three traditions that you um, really wisely expand upon in the book, which one do you kind of argue for, or is there kind of a combination of a certain elements from each tradition that would be best for us as we think about issues of just war theory and justice and human rights today?
1: So I argue for a— Augustinian liberalism or a liberal Augustinianism, kind of a blend between the first and the third traditions. We can't really go to an unrevised Augustinian tradition. There were some problems with that tradition. Um, It led to essentially Christendom, uh, which means uh, an overly comfortable marriage between church and state uh, that did not respect religious freedom and, and had some other problems with it. So I do think that there's some things to be learned through, uh, from, from classical liberalism and its understanding of the state and its purposes. And so an Augustinian liberal approach would say that the just purpose of warfare is the defense of ordered liberty and the vindication and restoration of ordered liberty in, through, and with warfare. And I call that the Augustinian liberal approach.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the role of technology in warfare. Uh, There's been a lot of conversation about bans of autonomous weapon systems, a lot of questions uh, surrounding kind of the fear of killer robots. And there's this understanding and kind of fear of technology on the world stage. How does um, technology impact the way that we think about just war?
1: So I included in my book a section very near the end on autonomous weapons and cyber warfare and a few other issues. And when I went in, I actually went in pretty skeptical and thinking that I would conclude uh, that autonomous weapons were immoral. And I I was surprised to find myself defending at least some use, some application of autonomous weapons. Um, The first thing I'd want to say is that autonomous weapons are not that new. We have had autonomous defensive weapons for quite some time. The Navy has, I think it's called the phalanx gun system, that helps defend aircraft carriers and other ships. Uh, it's essentially a gun controlled by a computer, guided by a radar. And when it detects threats coming in, it automatically can fire a gun to, to defend itself. But it's the key there is it's defensive. It is not designed for offensive operations or anti-personnel warfare. It just shoots down missiles and, and, and aircraft. Um, and that's been around for a, a couple of decades. And it's getting better as technology improves. So that kind of autonomous weapon I think is actually good in the sense that it can help uh, It can help with defense and help um, preserve and protect and defend human life. As we think about technology getting more sophisticated, we can think about, for example, a remotely piloted aircraft becoming fully autonomous. You know, the drones that we have become familiar with in recent decades. Conventionally, drones are not actually drones. They're remotely piloted. They usually have a human pilot Uh, controlling them from afar, but we can envision the near future where they are, in fact, fully autonomous, um, utilizing the kind of autopilot that is pretty conventional on commercial airliners right now. Now imagine giving those drones autonomous control over their own weapons to fire on targets. That gets a little trickier, but I don't think the moral objections are insurmountable. The real question here is, who has the right authority to, to kill on the battlefield? to use the just war language, who has right authority? And the the answer conventionally is that governments have the right authority to determine when to go to war and what that war involves. That's the responsibility of the sovereign. But the sovereign has always had the, the prerogative to delegate, to delegate his or her decision-making down the ranks to commanders and then uh, field commanders and so forth. So I think in principle, it's, it's conceivable that you could delegate to a computer. Um, it's, It's certainly true that computers will make mistakes, but so do human commanders. They make a lot of mistakes and kill civilians by accident. So I think the question isn't whether or not computers might make a mistake, but rather, will they actually improve on human judgment or not? And that's something actually we don't know yet. And how much latitude do we give the computers to make those decisions? And I think that's the really important part here. In, insofar as we're going to give these sort of decisions over to computers, we need to give them clear parameters, define the battle space, define the geographic parameters, and uh, oversee the programming such that um, it, you have a very sort of tight criteria, uh, targeting criteria, so the computer doesn't run amok uh, killing things it shouldn't kill. Uh, so I, that's about the limit of what I can say, because my knowledge of the technology is pretty limited right now. But I do think it's conceivable that we could be at a place where we could delegate some decision-making to computers to decide what to fire upon in a defined battle space.
0: Would you say that the computers themselves are then responsible for the fallout of the decision that they may make in that situation, or is that something that the human still, humanity still or the government that's in control would still bear responsibility for the actions taking place by the autonomous weapon system?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to always have a human commander on the blame line, so to speak. Uh, for what the computer under his command does. So yes, I think it's important that that people are are morally responsible for what the killer robots do. Maybe not in quite the same sense. I'm not sure you're gonna court-martial a commander if the killer robot goes haywire and kills somebody it's not supposed to. But it does mean that you're gonna have, in that scenario, you would then launch an investigation to find out more about the programming and what went awry and why. I think it's important that the programming be somewhat transparent even to non-specialists so that we all understand what kind of authority these killer robots have been given. And and that's that's gonna be important as we come to rely on these tools more. And let me just say, by the way, I think it's nearly inevitable this is gonna happen. Countries that are not so morally constrained will field these weapons. And for us to defend ourselves, we will have to field something like them just to keep up in the arms race. This is very normal in the history of warfare. When somebody invents a weapon system, everybody has to get it just to keep up. So there will be killer robots on the battlefield I'm certain of that and that just means we you know we're going to have to lead in the ethical use of these systems because uh China won't North Korea won't and Russia won't and so we and our allies are going to have to
0: Yeah I think that's a really important point to shift gears a little bit from the physical battle space into the digital battle space in many ways there's been a rise of over the last you know decade or so of cyber attacks uh cybersecurity task force that have been created uh, not just for issues uh, related to, like, election, elections and keeping them safe and secure, but even nation, uh, issues of safety and security of our borders and our troops overseas, kind of the nature of cybersecurity. Can you speak to how just war might inform the way that we think about cybersecurity and cyber warfare?
1: Well, I, I want to start out by saying that most of a malicious cyber activity is not rightly thought of as cyber war. Uh, people have been writing about cyber war for a long time, and it could happen, but most of what happens is cyber criminality, cyber mm-hmm. theft, cyber vandalism, maybe cyber sabotage occasionally, uh, but it is mostly not—I wouldn't characterize as cyber war. And so just war doesn't have a lot to say about hackers who steal your personal information and sell on the black market. Like, that's criminality. It's bad. They shouldn't do it. It's not really a matter of war and peace. There are some actions that maybe rise to the level uh, of war or at least— or espionage, or other acts between states, the political use of force, uh, such as cyber espionage, which is widespread and widely prevalent, or cyber sabotage, where you're using malicious computer code to infiltrate and wreck infrastructure overseas. That does happen, and that can have large-scale political effects and could, in theory, kill people, although to my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. The only interesting thing to say here is that That, of course, should be done with discrimination proportionality. It's not different from any other new tool in warfare. Every time there's a new tool, you got to think, okay, how do you use this with discrimination and proportionality? Same is true of those kinds of cyber activities. A more interesting question is, uh, again, it's about right authority. Within cyberspace, you have non-state actors, individual hackers or hacktivist uh, collectives, groups of people uh, that carry out a political agenda without accountability, without the legitimating authority of a state on their own authority to do things. All right. So there was a group called Anonymous that was active over the last 10 years, and they would do things like hack a credit card company because they thought that the credit card company was too powerful. Or they hacked the Islamic State because the Islamic State are terrorists. They targeted child pornography sites, but they also targeted um, legislators in countries that were passing laws that they didn't like, right? So this group had a very wide range of causes that it advocated. They were sort of anarchist libertarian. So what do we make of a group like that, using cyber tools to pursue a political agenda uh, outside of the realm of any state? Well, I guess I would respond that um, they, they lack right authority even if they occasionally have just cause. You know, hacking a child pornography site and taking it down, that's a wonderful thing. And essentially, these hackers are responding to conditions of state failure. You know, when there's no functioning regime capable of tackling those criminal organizations, the child pornographers, I, I suppose we should celebrate when somebody at least steps up to do something about it. But maybe there's a way that governments could start to partner with these hacker organizations to give them a bit more of legitimacy, a bit more cover, and a bit more um, sort of legal operating status so that they're not... Purely out there in the Wild West, if that makes sense. It's a really yeah. interesting case. We're still in kind of early days with this, but I'm I'm interested to see how it develops.
0: I'm really excited to read your book as it comes out. Again, for listeners, it's Just War and Order Liberty. I believe you can pre-order, is that correct?
1: Uh, it is available for pre-order on Amazon now.
0: And I know there's two versions. There's the expensive hardback edition and also the paperback <laughs> edition that'll be coming out. That's really the nature of academic publishing. Um, but as we yeah. close out our time today, outside of your book, if listeners wanted to dig in a little bit deeper on some of these uh, issues that we've spoken of today, what are one or two resources that you might recommend as kind of next steps for listeners who want to take that next step?
1: Well, in Just War generally, look up the books by Eric Patterson. Uh, Nigel Bigger wrote a very good one uh, called In Defense of War a couple of years back. Uh, James Turner Johnson um, are all uh, excellent uh, scholars on this stuff. Specifically on technology, I'm actually not sure of many Folks who have written at this intersection, aside from you, listeners can also look up uh, Klon Kitchen, our, our mutual friend Klon Kitchen at the Heritage mm-hmm. Foundation. He writes a lot on technology, and he may have written some things on the on the intersection of ethics and technology. Uh, though, don't quote me on that. Um, so, you know, keep an eye in the space. It's a new field. Uh, some people are writing on it, but I don't know. If there's any kind of standard work on it yet.
0: Yeah, I think I'd agree with you. There aren't a lot of standard works yet, but there is kind of an emerging, kind of burgeoning field of study, and this is definitely an interesting topic. As 2020 comes to a close, we at the ERLC are really thankful for the many ways that we get to assist churches by helping them to apply the gospel to the moral and ethical questions of the day, and also speaking from our churches as a witness in the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this here at the ERLC. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations that we receive apart from that go to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers advocating for religious liberty and human dignity at home and across the globe. You can consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com slash donate. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for talking about these issues a little bit. I'm also really excited to grab a copy of your book soon. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Miller and learn more about his forthcoming book and the other works that he referenced in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. This newsletter is designed to help you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the top technology news. Again, you can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.